Well, good morning. Uh, Please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, the place we'll start this morning, which is Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. Isaiah 60, verse 1. We'll read together verses 1 through 3 here in just a moment. While you're turning there, I I I would just thank Ken for the songs that he chose for us this morning. Uh, and even the one that he went and found for us to sing uh, for the first time that do such a good job of preparing us for the themes we're going to see this morning. So I'm grateful uh, for his service to us, as always. Uh, And there are many, as I look out. uh, That makes me think of James, uh, but so many more who are out this morning and traveling. We certainly want to remember them and be praying for their safety and for a wonderful time with family. Isaiah 60, verses 1, 2, and 3. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? You will hear in this uh, something akin to what he says in Isaiah 9 that we read often this time of year when uh, Isaiah writes, People who walk in darkness have seen a great light. You remember that statement? That will come to your mind uh, in this text as well. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Isaiah 60. Starting in verse 1 says this, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your morning." Excuse me, to the brightness of your rising. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Please be seated. And Father, we do come before you now uh, humble and grateful that we experience yet another day and yet another Lord's Day uh, where we are uh, given your word as our food. Lord, help us to see again this morning Uh, from the heart, that this is indeed what we're receiving. You are feeding your sheep. We thank you for it, Lord. We pray that you would guard us, guard uh, how we would handle your word, how we would respond to it. Help us to sense the weight of it upon us this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a lot uh, wrapped up in the biblical ideas of darkness and light. Uh, when it comes to uh, a number of themes that God gives to us in his word. Uh, moving from darkness to light, this is, a, this is essentially what we're going to look at this morning, but depending on where you go in, in the scriptures, that can entail a number of things. It can entail sometimes a move from ignorance to knowledge, darkness to light. Uh, sometimes it can be referring to a move from death to life, uh, and often, and as we'll see this morning, uh, it speaks in reference to a shift from judgment and oppression to freedom and reconciliation. When Isaiah writes about a people in darkness seeing a great light, Isaiah 9, or a people in darkness receiving the light that God is sending, Isaiah 60, uh, the emphasis that's being made is that Christ... And his coming represents a move from judgment and condemnation to forgiveness and reconciliation. One of the things that we're going to see uh, very carefully this morning is that the darkness that is, that is spoken of in Scripture in reference to God's people 
in reference to God's judgment comes to us fundamentally in the notion of exile. When God's people are judged in the Old Testament and they are sent into exile, this is seen and spoken of as the height of darkness that God is bringing upon his people. And when light comes, the very light that we just read about in Isaiah, what is happening is God is bringing restoration. He's bringing forgiveness and reconciliation to his people. I want us to focus on that contrast this morning uh, and in a very specific way. You notice in your bulletin we're going to spend our time in the books of Lamentations and Isaiah uh, in a way that I hope will help us to prepare ourselves a little bit more for what we're going to celebrate uh, here in just, in just a few days with the celebration of Christmas. Uh, from what we sing about this time of year to what we read in God's Word as we focus on certain passages, uh, that's one important designation of Christmas Day, is that it marks the day when the light of the world came to live among us. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to place ourselves intentionally uh, in some of the darkest of the Old Testament texts. Some of the darkest of Old Testament times. Uh, and we're going to do that on purpose. It's not something we would normally try to do on purpose, but there's a very good reason for that. And it's that uh, being in those places of greatest darkness, uh, it's a wonderful opportunity for us. It not only allows us to better understand the nature of the darkness that this light is said to drive away. But also, it's in those places in the Old Testament of greatest darkness that some of the most descriptive promises of light are found. So if we're going to see the light that God promises in the coming of Christ, if we're going to see it best, most clearly, one of the things we need to do is go find the darkest places that are spoken of in the Old Testament. So that's all a very long way of saying, please turn with me to the book of Lamentations. This will be uh, really a, a flyover this morning of portions of Lamentations and Isaiah. If you want to go into the Old Testament and get your eyes acclimated to the darkness, Lamentations is a great place to go. Lamentations was written by the prophet Jeremiah, and he wrote it regarding the very judgment and destruction that he was living to now see. This is God's judgment against Jerusalem when Babylon came and conquered and destroyed and sent God's people into exile. That's what Jeremiah is writing about as he writes the book of Lamentations. And it starts in chapter 1, verse 1, like this. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she who was great among the nations. And in very large part, that feeling that you get hearing that is the feeling that you have through a good majority of this book. Let's do a flyover here uh, of Lamentations. And I want you to see with me three elements of the darkness that Jeremiah brings forth in this book. Uh, first is the extent of the misery of this darkness. If you want to get a taste of what a miserable state God's people are in in this moment, you have your choice of a great number of passages here. This is a miserable book. This is a miserable time in God, the history of God's people. 
Let's look at that in a few places. Chapter 1, verse 3 says this, Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. And we're going to go on and see a number of specific uh, just descriptions of suffering, personal ail and woe. But, but as a, uh, in large part here, I hope you'll see that this one word, exile, very appropriately sums up the pinnacle of the darkness. This is what he is mourning. God's people are no longer in the very land that was promised to them. This is the height of the, sig- of the symbol of God's judgment upon them. They are in exile. Go to chapter 2, verse 8. I'll read verses 8 through 13. What is the extent of the misery of this darkness? Lamentations 2.8. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. And now he speaks about, him, his, about himself. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, Where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you? O daughter of Jerusalem, what can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Do you hear the plight of God's people? You hear the extent of the misery that they are now suffering. We all have moments of mourning, moments of tragedy, and in whatever extent we've experienced that, we can very much relate to Jeremiah in verse 11 as he imagines his eyes spent with weeping. He describes his stomach, how this has affected everything about uh, his, his experience, the suffering there, the longing as he hears children crying out to their mothers for bread. Go down now to verse 16 in the same chapter. Lamentations 2, 16 and 17 say this. All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry, We have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we longed for. Now we have it. We see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. 
He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. So now we see more about this misery, not just the personal suffering, but the shame that has come upon them as their enemies have triumphed. And as their enemies now mock them, and by implication, their God. And Jeremiah, as we'll see in just a moment, in further detail, you notice in verse 17 what we just read. He identifies here, this is a doing of the Lord. He is only doing what he has promised us he would do in his wrath. And we could go on and on and on in terms of descriptions of the extent of the the misery of this darkness. There are passages in Lamentations that if we read them, they would be tremendously upsetting to us in terms of the graphic nature of this misery. But before we move on to the second uh, element of darkness, I would just draw your attention to Lamentations 3.2. Do you notice when Jeremiah speaks there of the effects of this judgment on him personally? you notice the language he chooses to use there? How does this affect Jeremiah? How does he see this event? Jeremiah says this, Concerning God, he has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. This is the way he portrays the exile, the destruction, the suffering, culminating in the exile of God's people. So you can see it's not difficult to look into Lamentations and see the extent of the misery of this darkness. But there's much more that Lamentations tells us about the darkness Another thing that we see is we see an explanation for it. He doesn't just wallow in the misery. He, pers- he, he, he describes for us exactly where this has come from. It's not hard to find. Coming back into chapter 1, look at verse 8 of chapter 1. What's the explanation for this darkness that's come upon them? Verse 8 says this, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. Look down at verse 15. Here he is he's sort of personifying the nation. He says, I, and he's speaking for the nation of Israel. And it says this in verse 15. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. That, might, that language of trotting in a wine press might make some of you think of the book of Revelation and what God promises to do to his enemies. Well, here this language is, uh, is given in reference to his people. And with Jeremiah, there is no doubt as to the source of this darkness. The Lord is bringing this upon them in judgment for their sins. Look at verse 18 of the same chapter. Still speaking of Israel in the first person. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. See, God has kept his word to this nation. The Mosaic covenant contained clear covenantal curses that God would bring on the nation if they turned away from him. And therefore, Lamentations 2.17, as we've already read, can say about all of this darkness, the Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he, carried, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. Jeremiah is not unclear about 
where this judgment has come from. What is the explanation of it? So we've seen so far the extent of the darkness. We have heard explanations for it. But if we keep reading in Lamentations, we also see something else. We see amidst all of this, all of this uh, graphic, uh, very, very tragic language about the darkness, we also hear promises that there is going to come an end to this darkness. We find that even in a place like Lamentations, God's word to his people contains hope and promise that the darkness is not going to continue forever. Does it surprise you, in light of all that we've just been reading in Lamentations, does it surprise you that it's the book of Lamentations that holds the following very well-known passage? Have you heard this before? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are what? New every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. That comes from Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. Lamentations is a book that describes the darkness painfully well. But it also describes the end of this darkness. Look at chapter 3, verse 31. Continue to just notice what the prophet tells us about the end of this darkness. And pay attention because we're going to move into Isaiah in just a moment. And it's these promises that we're going to have uh, expanded upon, more detail given in the book of Isaiah. But first, Lamentations 3, 31 through 33 says this. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Lamentations makes it clear that this end to the darkness is going to come through repentance, through hearts that confess and return to God as their God. Look at the same chapter, verses 40 through 42. What does Jeremiah say there? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. In fact, the whole book of Lamentations ends with a prayer of, you could say, desperate hope. Desperation and yet hopefulness. Lamentations 4, verse 20. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Do you hear what he said there is the solution to this? O God, restore us to yourself. Now he speaks there in the context of exile. There is need for them literally to be restored to him, restored to his place, temple rebuilt. There is need for this. But that doesn't describe the extent of their need for restoration, does it? They need much deeper restoration than just that. When it comes to the darkness of God's judgment... Lamentations gives us some vivid pictures and even promises an end to that judgment. Do you know where Isaiah stands in comparison to this in history? 
Isaiah stands about 100 years before all of this. Jeremiah is writing uh, leading up to and then as Babylon comes and conquers. Jeremiah sees it with his eyes. He writes firsthand accounts and lamentations of the exile and of the, of the, the genocide. Right? A hundred years before that, Isaiah wrote and prophesied. And he wrote about the exact same things that Jeremiah is writing about here. It's the same warnings. The same judgments of darkness coming are written about by Isaiah as well. But in particular this morning, I want you to see that it's in those, in those promises of hope that we just read about in Lamentations, the end of Lamentations. It's those promises of hope where Isaiah provides to us especially unique details relevant to what we're doing together this morning. Through Isaiah, God tells us that the fulfillment of God's promise of hope is going to come in the form of a return from exile. Isaiah makes very clear, when, his, when God's plan in exile, in this darkness, is over, God is going to restore his people. And in going into detail about this, Isaiah tells us that this plan of God to bring light back, to restore his people, is going to happen in two phases. Two phases, taking two different forms. The first is going to involve an actual return from exile, bringing the people physically back to the land. We read about that especially in Isaiah 44 through 48, although it's mentioned before that. And what Isaiah is doing there is he is describing for us God's chosen instrument for this first phase of return from exile. That instrument's name is Cyrus. Hundred years before even the destruction happens, he's mentioned by name. Look with me at Isaiah now, 44, beginning in verse 28. I want to show you just two passages in this section, the Cyrus section of Isaiah, which is Isaiah 44 through 48, where we're seeing the first stage of this uh, promised return from exile. Isaiah 44, 28 says this, It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Moving into chapter 45, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob, and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. You hear how he speaks of Cyrus there? This is his shepherd to fulfill his purpose. Again, verse 28, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. When Isaiah writes this, I, Jerusalem's doing just fine, thank you very much. He's prophesying a time when a foreign ruler will declare that Jerusalem be built again. How must that have sounded? to his original audience. He's looking beyond what Jeremiah will, will 
experience, to what Jeremiah himself will promise. That God is going to bring back a people. And Isaiah tells us the instrument's name will be Cyrus. If you flip to the end of this section, to Isaiah 48, 20, you see this decree, uh, this command to God's people in that time. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the end of the earth, say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. This is the first part of God's promise in Isaiah of what he's going to do about this darkness he's bringing onto the land. He will bring them back from what he has done in judgment. But you've got a big problem still sticking out there. And that is that you can bring the people back from Babylon. It's another thing altogether to bring Babylon out of the people, if you will. If you just read Ezra and Nehemiah, you read about the post-return people of God, you see there they have not changed in terms of their relationship to God. They need more than just return from Babylon. They need forgiveness. They need removal of sin. They need a heart that seeks after God as their God. That's what they need. Coming back from Babylon doesn't fix that problem. And guess what? Isaiah writes about that. His promise of a return through the instrument of Cyrus is not the end of the portion of Isaiah that prophesies about the end of the darkness, the end of the exile. And exile language continues to be used after Isaiah 48. As he talks about the second phase of a return from the darkness, he talks now about another instrument. He's done talking about Cyrus. Now he talks about someone else. He talks about someone that's just called the servant of the Lord. As we come into Isaiah 49, and in 49 through 53, this is a section all about the servant of the Lord, as he is called, the second instrument of God in this process of restoring his people. This is a really interesting person, this servant of the Lord. He is identified with the nation in Isaiah 49.3. He's called Israel there. But then throughout what we're about to see, he's addressed as an individual person. In fact, in Isaiah 49.5, he's contrasted with the nation. He is going to do something for the nation. So in verse 3, he is the nation. In verse 5, he's going to do something mighty for the nation. This is very interesting. Let's take a moment here and survey some of what's said about this servant. Right? So I'm going to lead you through a set of passages here in Isaiah 49 through 53. And let me just ask you, we're about halfway through our time. Stick with me on this. Do not let your mind wander. Isaiah is painting a picture for us here that you, you need to see to understand what the Bible is saying about a light coming to a people in darkness. All right? You can't paint half of the picture and then stop and take a nap. And Have you ever watched Bob Ross? painting videos before and tried to paint along with them. I promise you I never have done that and I never will do that. No one in this world needs to see what would come out of that. Start that. Take a little nap, 10 minutes in. Keep it going. And then wake up and try to finish. See how that goes. Don't let your mind wander as we work through these passages. You need to see the picture that's being painted. Uh, Isaiah 49, the first three verses, 
first. This is the servant, as he'll identify himself. This is that servant of the Lord speaking here. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Skip down to verse 5. Verse 5 sets up uh, 6 through 10. Uh, and we're going to see that this is going to be, starting in verse 6, God speaking to the servant. All right, But this is still the servant in verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring, back, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, now this is God speaking to his servant. Verse 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And we stop there. What did we just see? God say to his servant about the work that he has for his servant to do. You notice what it said in verse 5? What was this servant appointed for? He was appointed to bring back Jacob, to gather Israel to him. This is rescue from exile language. This is the assignment that God has for his servant. And in fact, it goes even farther because verse 6 says, uh, which by the way, you notice in verse 6 that it likens the work of the servant to bringing a light Right? I will make you as a light to the nations. But in verse 6, it says that to do that, to bring back from, the, from exile, um, uh, the, the, Jacob and Israel would be too light a thing. You might have to reread that as if it, maybe you think it's a question. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to bring, to raise up the tribes of Jacob? That's not what it says. It's a statement. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. God has sent this servant as a light to the nations in order to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what we find. And as he is given to them in this way, verse 8 says, he is being given as a covenant. 
Boy, is that interesting. Turn now to Isaiah 50 and find verse 5. This is still in the section having to do with the servant of the Lord and the prophecies concerning this instrument of God. Let me read Isaiah 50, verses 5 through 10. This is still the servant speaking. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Listen to what the invitation is. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. This is the invitation being made to a people in darkness through this servant of the Lord who has been sent, why? To bring back God's people to him. Go down now to Isaiah 52, verse 13. If you're really with it this morning, you'll be seeing where we're headed here as we get to Isaiah 50, Isaiah 52 now. Isaiah 52, 13. The servant isn't talking anymore here. God is speaking about the servant now. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, you being the servant. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Where are we now? Now we're in Isaiah 53. Now we hear in this chapter that the servant we've been being told about is going to be, verse 3, despised. He's going to, verse 4, bear the griefs and sorrows of his people. Verse 5, he's going to be pierced for the transgressions of his people. Verse 6, you and I, each of us, have gone astray like sheep. We've turned away to, uh, we've turned each to his own way. And you tell me, what did Cyrus do about that? Cyrus didn't do a thing about that. But with this servant, we will have hope. Why? Because the Lord has caused our iniquity to fall on him. This servant has borne our iniquity. And it goes on from here. Isaiah continues to weave amid these prophecies of their coming misery, their coming darkness. He continues to weave a thread of hope to come. 
We haven't had quite enough darkness yet this morning. Let's hear some more darkness. <laughs> Isaiah 59, verse 9, verses 9 and 10. Therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. End quote. He goes on to, to give the reason, just like Jeremiah did. This is happening because of your sinful rebellion. But look down at verse 15. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. Excuse me. Verse 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And we now come to what we began with. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. That's all the context for what we started with this morning. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your morning. All right, we've painted the picture. I don't know what Bob Ross says at the end of his videos, but we're, we've, we've done it. Do you have the picture in your mind of what God has said he's doing, not through Cyrus, but, but through the servant of the Lord, to a people who, be, no matter where they are geographically, still need to be brought back to the Lord. They still stand in need of a return to him. All of this entails God's message of hope, for a rebellious people. Israel longs for their lost homeland, and God says to them, take heart. You shall come again to your land. But that will not remove what separates you from me. Your real hope lies in the way that I will put away from you your exile forever. This is what we see in the servant of the Lord, in the coming of light to those who are in darkness, so that one commentator says this, he says, the final stage of return from exile is inaugurated with the coming of Jesus. In that way, God will complete his rescue of his people. And it is just amazing to see all the ways that God pictures this in his word. For example, you have in Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, which also speaks of many of these same promises, same judgments, but same promises. You know, turn with me here. Jeremiah 16, 14. Maybe a lot of calories ahead of you this week. You need to get some upper body exercise. I'll keep you moving here. Jeremiah 16, verses 14 through 16. This is just incredible. Therefore, behold, 
The days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. In other words, that shall no longer be the way that you proclaim the strength of, the God, of, of God. But Verse 15. But rather, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Verse 16. Behold, I am sending for many fishers. ESV says fishers, fishermen, declares the Lord. And they shall catch them. And afterward I will send for many hunters. And they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. This return to me from exile will be so great, he says. The people will no longer refer to God's power by pointing back to Exodus. They'll point to this Exodus that Jeremiah says he still is to work in the future. You remember what it was said in Luke 9.31. Luke actually tells us on the Mount of Transfiguration what Jesus and Moses and Elijah were talking about. Do you remember that? What were they talking about? Quote, they were speaking about his exodon, his exodus, that he was about to accomplish. That's what they're talking about. All of this has been promised is almost here they say, and they're discussing the exodus that Jesus is about to accomplish. This work that God is promising in Jeremiah and in Isaiah, while partly fulfilled through Cyrus and the decree to return to Jerusalem, it is finally finished in the new exodus that Jesus leads at the cross. And in Jeremiah 16, what we just read, he describes it by saying he's going to send out fishermen and hunters to go and pluck every last one of his people from where they are and bring them back, bring them out of exile, fulfill this return mission that the servant had in the book of Isaiah. Fishermen and hunters. And what does Jesus say in calling his 12 disciples? Matthew 4, 19. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You think he was just playing on their occupation I wonder why God called fishermen in the first place. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy when he tells them, follow me, I will send you out. As God's means of fulfilling his promises and you will catch every last one of my people and bring them back to me. You see, Jesus' birth was no new thing, was it? No surprise. His birth is nothing short of the sum and substance of all the hope that God's people have ever been given. All the other pictures of hope that they'd received were foreshadowings of this. From Adam's uh, bloody animal skin coverings in the garden, to the bloody doorpost that caused the angel of death to pass over them, to the exodus itself, the Red Sea crossing, to the fellowship with God represented at the bright cloud in the temple, this light coming to a people in darkness has always been the only hope that God's people ever had. And that means it's your only hope too. It's the only hope that you ever will have. 
We read in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, we read these words. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is such a powerful reminder for us this morning. This light's coming into the world does not mean that everyone comes to this light, does it? The light has come to a people living in darkness. And Scripture is clear. Not everyone in the darkness comes to this light. I hope it's abundantly clear to all of us here this morning that if your life is not a living sacrifice, if you have not died to yourself and lived now by faith in the Son of God, you have forsaken the only hope that God has ever provided sinful humanity. I mean, that's it. The book of Hebrews will put it this way. There is no other sacrifice left to you. And in Hebrews 2.3, it asks this question. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If you are a believer here this morning, and of course we're gathered together as the church, as God's people, so I trust that this is the group that I'm speaking to. This morning's message comes as a call to you as well. The call to you this morning is to remember that your being brought from darkness to Christ's light entailed a movement from judgment to forgiveness, from judgment to reconciliation. A light has come to you, and you have been rescued by it. And to you, God's word would give this encouragement today. This is the encouragement for you. Love that light that he did not owe you. Treasure it. Fight for your love of it. Fight for your love of it. Does the scriptures warn us that our love can grow cold? We must fight for our love of the light that God has brought to us in his son. Because of that light, you are forever an object of God's mercy and forgiveness. Are you going to live today like the man in Matthew 18 who was forgiven 10,000 talents worth of debt and went out with an utterly unforgiving heart? Love the light that has been given to you. Live in light of who you are because he chose freely to give you the gift of the light of his son. If he's brought you into his light, you are now a child of light. And that means that there's some comparisons that you can make. It's those of the darkness who excuse their shortcomings, who nurture bitterness in their hearts in this situation or that, who live a two-faced life. Those are descriptions of people who live in darkness, not people who are children of light. Those in the light have nothing to hide. We are forever now placed in the blessed position of humility. We have nothing to hide. Those in the light enjoy the peace of a clear conscience. 
So what do you need to do today to display those priorities that belong to a child of light? That is for you to dwell on this afternoon, this week, given the realities that we have been shown in God's word. So this morning, as you prepare for the celebration to come here in just a few short days, I pray that this morning's time is a great benefit to you, a great blessing. I pray that your thoughts and your lives would be indeed enlightened by memories of the terror and hopelessness that belonged to you before the light of the world came, and that you might give constant, great, and thankful praise to God and to his Son who has brought light to our darkness. Pray with me, if you would. Father, we we do indeed, as your people, corporately, we do so imperfectly, but we do so uh, genuinely because of the work you've done in us. Lord, we thank you for the light that has rescued us from our life of darkness and all the misery that goes with it and all the consequences, the eternal consequences that go with choosing the darkness instead of the light. We know, Lord, as your word tells us, that no matter what our desire would be, we would wander to and fro throughout the earth, failing to find your light, failing to find your word. If you did not choose to kindly and freely bring it to us, that means each and every one of us in this room knows themselves to be objects of unimaginable mercy and grace. Lord, help us to remember those realities as we celebrate the coming of your light into the world. These things we ask, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand with me for our benediction this morning? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And amen. We are dismissed.